I want to tell you about Tiny Talkers group curriculum. If you're an SLP looking for more work-life balance and a fresh way to do things in your private practice, then the Tiny Talkers group curriculum might be just what you're looking for. Tiny Talkers groups are set up as a way to provide accessible speech and language support to young children in a small group setting. Our friend Megan Samuels, creator of Tiny Talkers, has done all the planning for you. When you sign up for the curriculum, you get a full 36-week program divided into summer, fall, winter, and spring semesters. The plans are easy to implement and adjust as needed to meet the needs of your clients. They include material checklists and parent handouts for each session. And the best part is, Megan designed each week so that all the materials you'll need can fit into one sensory bin. So once you get your group set up, you're done. In the years that follow, you'll pull out that bin and go. No planning, no stress, just fun. If you want to learn more about Tiny Talkers, go to tinytalkersgroupcurriculum.com to check it out. Make sure to use our code BOOKCLUB10 at checkout to get 10% off your order. We love Tiny Talkers Group Curriculum, and we know you'll love it too. You're listening to the SLP Book Club. We're your hosts, Laura Geisert and Adrian Frost. This month, we're reading Lisa Murphy on Play, The Foundation of Children's Learning by Lisa Murphy. Let's get into it. Hi, Adrian. Hi, Laura. Welcome back to the SLP Book Club podcast. Today, we are covering chapters 11 and 12 from Lisa Murphy on Play, The Foundation of Children's Learning. Before we get into our chapter, we're going to do some conversation starters to get to know each other a little bit better. Adrian, I'm going to ask you one first. Yeah, go for it. Would you rather go deep sea diving or bungee jumping. We've both given our thoughts on the ocean, but bungee jumping is also scary. It's very complicated because, yeah, my answer is neither. Is that an option? None. Opting out? Nope. Got to choose one. (laughs) I guess diving. I don't want to, but honestly, heights and falling, so horrifying. I know. But I guess it's over fast. Yeah. And I bet it's one of those things where the fear before is terrible. And then after you're like, oh my God, that was amazing. Okay. It's like a roller coaster. The one that takes you up. What is that one at Knott's Berry Farm? Supreme Scream, where you go up really, really high and then it drops you. Yeah. Yeah. That is horrific. (laughs) I do not want anything to do with it. (laughs) You know, what's even scarier is when you do one of those just a little traveling carnival or fair. You know, they just set it up a week ago. So who knows if there's like nuts and bolts falling out. Yeah. (laughs) At least if you're at an established theme park like Knott's Berry Farm, it's been there. It's safe. They are like checking it all the time. I don't know. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And But then diving, it's like there's a certain amount of safety that's on you. At that point, you know, if something goes wrong. You have to make decisions. Yeah. I would never do it. Deep sea diving. Couldn't ever. So it's got to be bungee jumping for me too. Okay. I have a good one for you if you're ready. Okay. I'm ready. (laughs) If the color blue had a smell, what would it smell like? Blueberries. (laughs) Blueberries. Wait, which, what, what smell is the Mr. Sketch blue dark blue oh yeah i think blueberry it is blueberry right yeah what do you think okay this (laughs) the thing that popped into my head first i'm not really proud of it ice (laughs) ice i can't even defend it like i just cold it's cold have a freezer burn i mean we're talking about water here this is not something with a smell (laughs) i have no idea i can't explain it 
but I will stand by it because that's just what I thought. Although I do think blueberry is the right answer. I think blueberry <laughs> is the right one. But I'm trying to think of some other, like a light blue could be bubble gum. Yeah, I think I was thinking ice blue. Maybe that's why I thought ice. Okay. Were you thinking of a minty, like a winter fresh or? Mm, yeah, I love that. <laughs> yeah. Winter blue. Maybe it's those associations, but it could also smell like the ocean. Okay. Right. The ocean is blue. Depending, okay. I guess, where you are. Sometimes it's kind of green. But <laughs> Now, what would... I mean, I know, like, what a candle that's supposed to smell like the ocean smells like, but it doesn't really... Like, oh, yeah. are we talking kind of fishy or... Salty, I think. <laughs> Salty. Salty. Okay. Yeah. Salty blue marker. <laughs> I don't know why I'm only thinking oh. markers. We're talking the color blue has a smell. Just the color. <laughs> like, you know, people who are... um, What is that word? synesthesia yeah so when you know people get a taste in their mouth with a specific word or you know they get a visual in their head when they hear music so i think some people might get a scent that they associate with a color yeah you should do one more yeah let me see would you rather have nosy neighbors or noisy neighbors i would rather have nosy neighbors noisy neighbors that drives me cuckoo crazy and it's just like don't mess with my peace yeah nosy how nosy can you really be are you peering over my fence that's fine it's probably not a lot for you to see sometimes some (laughs) weird witchcraft happening (laughs) a seance or two a full moon ritual yeah you never know but nosy it's like are you going through my mail you just keeping track of who's coming and going that's fine I don't really care in fact it could come in handy oh yeah I mean if something suspicious happens they'll be the first one to call the cops exactly they'll be like hey I'm a little worried. I haven't seen my neighbor in two days. Sound the alarm. And I know her car is home. Sound the alarm. (laughs) And thank you. (laughs) I guess I would go with that one too, because I think I've told you I used to have this guy that was in a boy band in the early 2000s who lived above me. Remember? (laughs) No, I've never heard this. Which boy band? He was in a boy band called Dream Street. I remember them. Dream, Dream Street. Street. Was he just like living in Fullerton? No, he lived at our old apartment building that we just moved from. When we first moved in, he lived oh. in the apartment above us and he was still, he was no longer in this boy band, but he was still making music and he was up at all hours. We regretted moving there so much. We got his number. We were texting him constantly. We liked him. We hung out with him a few times, but... It was really bad. Really, really bad. We couldn't even sit and watch TV without hearing like thumping bass. Oh, my God. So I would have much rather he's peeking down the balcony at us. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Wow. I think Mm. that's the negative of apartment living, right? People above or under you. Yeah. Okay. That's it for our little conversation starters. Stick around after this quick break. We're going to get into this week's chapters. Have you checked out Laura's speech materials yet on Teachers Pay Teachers or Boom Learning under Laura G. SLP? I am such a huge fan and I'm here to sing her praises. (laughs) Since I'm a teletherapist, I use Boom cards almost exclusively during my sessions. As with all things in speech, sometimes the most unexpected materials are a hit with the kiddos. My students love Laura's What Did You Find activities that feature a fun flashlight to look for different items. And her Lidcomb handouts for parents on TPT are also amazing, and I love to use them with private clients. She also has some great game type reinforcers like the picture reveal activities, 
and a Connect Four donut game that I've been playing on repeat with one student for months. <laughs> the best part is that I can use almost all of her materials with a range of kids who have different levels of needs. This helps you get the most bang for your buck. Her materials are well thought out, evidence-based, and fun and engaging for the kids. We can't all be creative geniuses, so we might as well support and benefit from those who are. Thanks for sharing your genius with us, Laura. Go check them out today at Laura G SLP on Boom Learning and TPT. The SLP Book Club is not just a podcast, it's a community. Go to our Instagram at SLP underscore book club to join the discussion and connect with us after each episode. Want even more of the SLP Book Club? The resources we make to support the content of the books we read are available for free on our Patreon or at the Laura G SLP Teachers Pay Teachers store. You can find links to them in the show notes. To learn more about the SLP Book Club, go to the slpbookclub.com. You can contact us by emailing hello at the slpbookclub.com. Follow us on Instagram at slp underscore book club or on TikTok at the SLP Book Club. Okay, welcome back to the SLP Book Club podcast. Today we're covering chapters 11 and 12 from Lisa Murphy on play. So our first chapter... 11 is make time each day to move. All right. So Lisa starts by saying that many of us engaged in really physical games when we were young and we were allowed to play outside for hours at a time. Things like ring around the rosy and hopscotch, doing cartwheels, climbing trees. Adrian, do you have a favorite physical activity you used to do when you were a kid? I don't know. I liked bike riding with my friends. I think that kids had more freedom in general when we were younger. So we would just like get up to it in the neighborhood. Oh, yeah. And have so much fun. Oh, me too. Yeah. And then I was trying to think at school, my favorite thing to do, and I looked up to make sure that this is an appropriate term, but it was Chinese jump rope. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where you re- the elastic goes around two people's legs and you make a square and then oh, you yes. jump and you make like cat's cradle shapes and stuff with your leg yeah that's fun I loved it and I checked and it comes from China in the seventh century (laughs) so it's like that's why they call it that okay but then my other thing was just lower bars we used to have bars where we could just do flips like we were gymnasts you know you'd hold it at your waist oh I was obsessed with that we would just sit all the girls would just be flipping nonstop during recess like this was at school (laughs) we're upside down flipping and flipping and flipping (laughs) Oh my gosh. I remember that too. And you get the calluses on your hand oh, from yeah. like holding onto the bar and flipping. Oh, I remember oh, there was a girl who could do like the cherry drop. It was something really dramatic where you hung upside down by your knees and then you like flipped off. Oh my gosh. And everybody would watch and you'd like hope to be brave enough to do it. But it was really scary. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it's crazy to think playgrounds just aren't They don't allow that type of stuff anymore, I think. Yeah. So Lisa says the connection between physical development and brain development is very well documented. Obviously, we have a whole domain of the DAP dedicated to it. And she says that children develop from the neck down and the trunk out. So gross motor skills develop first, then fine motor skills. Children need to climb, jump, spin, etc. before they can do things like holding pens, tying shoes, zipping zippers. There's too much focus on the other domains and physical development often gets neglected nowadays. There was a very sad section 
that made me want to cry about schools that eliminated recess for various reasons, things like not enough adult supervising focusing on testing, fear of lawsuits, other stuff. You know, she mentioned some cities and states that have gone through with it, taking away recess that were just terrible. A school in Virginia that did a very sad walk and talk where kids could walk around cones on the yard, but they would be yelled at if they were talking too loud. Mm. An Atlanta superintendent who said, you don't improve academic performance by having kids hang on the monkey bars. So Atlanta at one point eliminated recess and started building elementary schools without playgrounds. And Lisa says every administrator and politician who approves eliminating recess should be required to teach children for a week when it's raining. (laughs) LOL. (laughs) We all know those days where you can't get outside and the kids are all losing it and the teacher is losing it. I mean, just horrible. She says taking away recess doesn't change the fact that children need to move. So if you take away their access to the outdoors, they'll start doing those big motor movements indoors and climbing or jumping on tables and chairs, which is then treated as behavior problems when really what we have are expectations problems. Mm. If you're expecting a kid not to do those behaviors, you're the one with the problem. Right. Lisa paints a really grim picture of what happens when kids aren't given enough time to play outside. They wiggle in their desks. They're told to sit still and pay attention. When they don't sit still and can't pay attention, they're referred for an assessment. They're given an IEP and a label and sometimes medication. The medication helps them focus and pay attention, making the child easier to... She says, easier to control. And then she wrote, oops, I mean handle. (laughs) And the teacher's day is then easier. And Lisa thinks the problem is not with the child, but with the information they are being required to pay attention to, which is not necessarily worth listening to or sitting still for. She feels that hyper kids need people that pay attention and provide them with meaningful, relevant experiences, activities, and projects. They need to move to touch things and be really fully engrossed. She explains how in the DSM-5, ADD and ADHD became one under the label of ADHD. And she says most adults or many adults who look at the criteria could self-diagnose themselves as having ADHD. She says she has a hard time sitting still but has learned strategies for paying attention. And because she's an adult and can self-regulate, when she's feeling wiggly, she can quietly excuse herself. Or she can sit if she knows a break is coming up. But kids don't have the language capacity to express themselves when it comes to their needs. And even if they do, adults will often deny them. Children end up being medicated sometimes because we have placed unrealistic expectations on them. And it's not wrong that the child can't complete the work. It's wrong that we're expecting him to do it in the first place. There are environmental factors that contribute to ADHD, like inappropriate curriculum, rigid educational systems, lack of body movement, too much screen time, and a lack of creative play. Dr. Thomas Armstrong, who wrote a book, The Myth of ADD or something like that, The Myth of ADHD, I don't know, probably controversial, but he says attention disorders are recent historical developments invented in cognitive psychology labs and by the U.S. Department of Education and Big Pharma. I mean... We could probably get into this, but when I was a kid, I remember the one kid in my class who was on medication. Mm. We knew it. The teacher allowed him, if he needed to, to get up out of his seat and he would just kind of pace back and forth in the room. Mm. But I mean, now it's just the expectations 
when they're so young are so different and teachers are pushing, you know, I've had kindergarten teachers who are like, why won't his mom put him on medication? And you're like, he was fine in preschool. This is a kid who was doing very well in preschool. Mm. Now you put him in kindergarten where suddenly he's expected all day to sit and read and our expectations are so Mm. high and it wasn't the right teacher for him. But, you know, well, we're going to talk about it, the disappearing symptom syndrome or whatever she calls it. It's just if the symptoms weren't there when he was able to play and explore and do a bunch of hands-on play-based learning, and then you put him in kindergarten where mm-hmm. he's expected to sit still all day, and now suddenly you're seeing these behaviors, there's not a problem with the child, right? Yeah. I mean, do you, I remember playing in kindergarten a lot in the classroom. Like I distinctly remember having a play kitchen, dress up clothes in my kinder classroom. Oh, yeah. And I'm thinking back to the last kinder classrooms I was in. And I don't think I saw that they were so academic, right? It's just desks. I mean, the sight words that they're required to learn by the end of kindergarten, the rainbow words, it's I was not reading those words in kindergarten. I was just playing and playing and playing. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, we had this discussion when we read Smart But Scattered because that was really written for parents and they covered, you know, what to do when teachers are pushing medication. But Lisa says, just because a child is loud and active doesn't mean they need a diagnosis. There are a lot of ways to deal with challenging behaviors that don't require medication. And then she gets into the different learning styles, which is so interesting because we just talked about this last month with the seeds of learning. Yeah. But we have visual, auditory, and kinesthetic learners. Kids who are labeled as having ADHD are usually kinesthetic learners. That's going to mean that they need more hands-on learning. Yeah. But everyone uses all three learning styles. And just because you have a preference for how you take in information doesn't mean you can't learn the other ways. So what Lisa is saying is not that we give these kids an out, you know, so it's still in line with what Tara says, where we don't teach to the child's learning style. But what Lisa says is we must have understanding. And I think that's what Mm -hmm. sometimes teachers can have a hard time with because they're so overwhelmed. So when you have a kinesthetic learner or a kid that maybe has executive functioning deficits, it's really hard. What you want is a bunch of little visual learners (laughs) who sit and pay attention and are so focused on you. So she has a really beautiful way of describing the three types of learners on page 93. So she says the visual learner wants to sit in front and look at the pictures in the book and she loves to read and write, notices everything, your gray hairs, your zits, your new car. (laughs) They use sidewalk chalk to draw and and illustrate. They make lists. And then later they're going to love to text or email rather than call. That's me. And me. (laughs) The auditory learner doesn't need to write things down. They will be listening even when you think they aren't. They're very chatty and love talking on the phone. That's my sister. (laughs) My sister and I both were waitresses at the same restaurant. I go to a table and I have to write down what they say. I have to 100%. I'm writing drinks down every single thing. My sister is very auditory. So she never writes down a single thing. She's that Mm. waitress that just stands there and goes, okay, okay. And gets your order right because she's super auditory. And like the information she takes in through her ears Mm. turns into a visual representation in her mind. Wow. Interesting. Uh, And then kinesthetic learners act out the story. They do the experiment. They build the model airplane. They have to be up and moving. They need to stand up. They ask questions 
about everything. They touch everything. We know these guys. <laughs> and she says, you wouldn't blindfold yeah. a visual learner or plug the ears of an auditory learner. But when we tell kinesthetic learners to sit still and be quiet, we are doing exactly that. And adults need to make adjustments to accommodate them because the visual and auditory learners are, of course, easier to teach, yeah. but we can't turn everyone into one. Right. I love this story she told of the teacher who would load milk crates with really heavy textbooks. And then when they had a kid that was antsy, they would go, oh, Mr. Jones needs his books back. Billy, can you take them? <laughs> And the kid would have to lug, pull this thing through the hall to the next teacher. And then when he got to that teacher, the teacher would go, yes. oh, thank you so much. While you're out, so-and-so needs her books. And then would give a different crate to him. So there were like milk crates full of books in everybody's oh room. And then the kid's lugging them around for 15 minutes <laughs> and then comes back. After exerting all that energy, they're better able to focus and sit still. Yeah, that's a great idea. It's <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> And then this is where she gets into what's called disappearing symptom syndrome. When kids with ADHD are placed in engaging, interactive classrooms, their symptoms disappear. And then the symptoms reappear when they are in rigid, over-controlling environments. But they're usually fine when they're outside or in gym class mm -hmm. or something like that. So, you know, if you really had yeah. a really big problem, you'd see the symptoms everywhere but not with this. And then she talks about risk-taking. She said children need to play unencumbered so they can learn about balance and motion, pendulums, cause and effect, action and reaction. And I had to read this sentence she wrote about 70 times before it sunk in. In Play's Place in Public Education for Young Children, which was edited by Victoria Jean Dimigian, she says, children who are afraid to risk rarely become fluent readers which was fascinating to me. I just was like, wait, what? Hmm. Children who are afraid to risk. But then, of course, if you're risk aversive, maybe you'll be afraid to even try and fail at reading and afraid that you'll be wrong. Yes. I'm picturing little girls, right. but I don't know kids that are scared to try new things for fear of failing. And I'm like, wait, aren't I like that? But just like we talked about when I was a kid, right. I wasn't afraid of anything. I was flipping on the bars. I was swinging from the monkey bars, like jumping off stuff, you know, climbing trees. Yeah. I was not afraid of risks. So she says, don't let indoor rules follow kids outside on the playground. And she tells the story of taking kids mm. to the park with her childcare center and letting them be wild while the other mothers were just absolutely horrified. It was a cute story. You should read it. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Children need to move around yeah. even when it's too hot or too cold. And if you want to incorporate this, use music and dancing. Get out your parachute. I have one. I loved the really big parachute when I was a kid that somebody would bring out at elementary teacher. school where every like me too. multiple classes would be gathered yes. around it. Popcorn. It's so fun. You can do the hokey pokey. <laughs> Basically, she just says, think back to when you were a kid and what you love to do and try to implement that. And she ends the chapter with a review of all the points that she hit on and some questions to think about, like, does our program provide enough time for moving? Can I modify it in some way to better meet the needs of the children in my class? Where, how, and what did I play with when I was a child? And, you know, some questions about your thoughts on ADHD and labels. And, you know, she just has some really good questions on pages 98 and 99 for you to think about and some quotes about movement that might get you a little bit inspired on page 99. 
All right, so that's it for chapter 11. And now moving on to chapter 12, it's make time each day to sing. So this is our chapter about music and singing. And Lisa starts off by asking what songs you know and who taught them to you and who are you teaching them to? I got called out here because I feel like when I was a kid, I loved singing and music and I can think of, you know, the songs I sang in kindergarten and preschool or even my dad would play the guitar and he would always play this song called One Meatball that is hilarious. And, you know, those are not the songs I was singing with my kids when I would sing. I was using a lot of the songs. Yeah. Yeah. The music (laughs) that I feel like she's like, don't use this. Actually, I did have something to say since we're just launching into this. I know We have a couple years between us. Yeah. So growing up, you would go to the library and they would have a VHS called We Sing in Sillyville. Have you ever heard or seen anything about this? (laughs) That sounds familiar. Give it a Google. Okay. Google image search. (laughs) We Sing in Sillyville. I'm hoping this is like activating some memories from people's like deep recesses of their mind. Uh Uh-huh. I found the whole thing's on YouTube if you want to watch it and like have a little nostalgia. Oh my gosh, yes. That tree, (laughs) that singing tree. Yes. (laughs) I was obsessed. And a lot of the songs that she mentions are in this video. That song that's like fish and chips and vinegar where it's like you sing it like a round and that goes a little green. You know that one? Yeah, of course I do. So many really great songs. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm just like flipping through Google images when I typed in We Sing in Sillyville. And yeah, just like you said, I'm just getting flooded with memories. Well, if you want to, I mean, you should really watch it because it's cute. Sometimes I, my daughter will watch it. But that's where a lot of those classic songs are. And I did a little research about it a couple of years ago. And the two women who started the movie actually made books that are like literal like sheet music of all these classic children's songs and they're called we sing w-e-e sing and sometimes i go to my used library bookstore all the time the used bookstore at my mm-hmm. library and i find them there all the time and it's like okay. if you really aren't familiar with some of these songs you can pick up a book like that and you know my used bookstore they're like a dollar a piece but they have all of those great songs and I just it has like a special place in my heart because those were the songs that I grew up singing to at school and just singing for the joy of singing because it's fun yeah and now kids are just having like a message or some type of learning crammed down their throat and it's not just like singing because it's a song and we're learning it and we're learning the finger play I don't know I know well my daughter did come home singing 99 bottles of beer on the wall oh a classic (laughs) I used to we used to sing that a classic but (laughs) Seeing her cute little face and she's singing about beer, I'm like, (laughs) I mean, that was a good idea. You gotta have that one for a long car ride. I can picture myself singing that when I was about five or six. Yeah, (laughs) because you're learning to count backwards. Exactly, and it's fun. So, yeah, I agree. Though there has been a shift, I think. Yeah. All right. Lisa tells us that musical intelligence is the first one we acquire and the last one we lose before we die. And then she includes a quote from Bev Boss. She said, songs are hooks to hang a memory on. 
which Lisa refers to throughout this chapter, just, you know, the way that they get stored in your memory. And I mean, just look when we look at that picture of we sing in Sillyville, is that what's called? Yeah. <laughs> that feeling you get, you're like, oh my gosh, you remember things that you totally, totally forgot. Songs will stay with children their whole life. So we need to make sure that they have something to remember like we were given. And you don't have to be a good singer because kids aren't. You just have to sing. Don't worry about looking foolish. Just do it. Pick a song and start singing it around the house so you get used to it. And, you know, Lisa says the belief that we can't sing has really emerged with studio enhanced music. She also says you should allow children to play with sound. So have instruments, bells, drums, pots and pans, rain sticks, shakers just available for them to make music. And she tells a story of a four-year-old who was not speaking, and she has an interesting take on when kids don't speak. She's like, I don't really think there's anything wrong. I, I did cringe <laughs> a little internally. You know. I was like, okay, well. <laughs> She's like, sometimes there are hearing issues or language delays, but sometimes it's a power struggle. Sure. Or sometimes they just don't have anything to say to us yet. And so she was called in to see if she could figure out what was going on. And she spent a lot of time with him doing really verbally descriptive play and then movement and singing. And between each activity, she would take him to the swings and they would swing together. And she would sing My Bonnie Lives Over the Ocean. As she worked with him, eventually he used four words. And when she was done with him, she was kind of disappointed. She's like, oh, after all this time, all I got was four words. Mm. But then she said after she left, the teachers told her, that the little boy went over to the swings and started singing the whole song himself. And then two weeks later, he started talking. So she says it's important to remember that sometimes music is the way in. And I think we see that with a lot of our kids that we work with, kids with autism, sometimes music is the way in that you really connect with them. And yeah. so she says, make the music meaningful. A lot of the music now that we have available is trite, overly cute, sugary, sweet, and lacks depth. She says, if you think it's a stupid song, then it probably is. <laughs> when she said that baby shark came to my mind. Oh, geez. Yeah. <laughs> Stop trying to sing songs that teach and instead sing songs that encourage active participation. You know, she tells a story of a music man that would come to this school on Fridays and set up a big setup, all this, whatever. He had a instruments and stuff and then he would just sing at the children not with them not encouraging them to sing along and he wouldn't even mm. take their requests he just had his own agenda yeah we've talked about the kindergarten teacher you worked with who still had an upright piano and my kindergarten teacher had a piano yeah. And I can just picture us all gathered around her singing at the top of our lungs, doing all these movements and stuff, you know, like, do your ears hang low? Yeah. So Lisa says pre-recorded music is not a substitute for singing together out loud. And she provides a really great list of her favorite songs to get you started and a list of her favorite children's musicians. On the list, I saw Greg and Steve, and I went to their concert when I was a child. <laughs> I think it was a field trip. And then Raffi, I mean, I Raffy, worshipped Raffi. Like Baby, Baby Beluga. Beluga. I had so many Raffi cassette tapes. Aww. If you have the book, make sure you look through this list. And she's really saying, like, look at this list of great songs. Pick some. Learn them. Yeah. You know, go to YouTube. Play them. And so I did that. Like, I was like, what's this song? I don't know this song. So I picked Ella Jenkins, Did You Feed My Cow? Oh, nice. <laughs> and there's such a beautiful 
YouTube version where it's Ella Jenkins herself singing with kids and you see the way she explains it to them because there's like parts in it where they have to go like, yes, ma'am. You know, so she's like, okay, when I say this, you're going to say this, you know, she's singing with them. It was so fun. There's no visual to it. You're just listening to it. I was like, oh, I love this. And then I switched over to the pink fong version of did you and it's just like sugary sweet. It cut out any part that was about like the cow died in the song, <laughs> but it just Aww. cuts it out completely. You know, it totally changes the ending of the song and just switches over to like, did you feed my pig? And it's all these visuals that kids can be involved in music just listening to it and listening to you sing it or listening to a pre-recorded version. But why do they need the video with it? You know, the animation that they're just getting so hooked on, right? You know, Laura, I'm glad you're giving me an idea for a hot topic. So I'm going to put it on the list. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, I'll just go off a little bit. As much as any preschool teacher or SLP, I am a huge, huge fan of super simple songs. I love them. I think they're cute. I get them stuck in my head. Sometimes I'll be just around my house going, let's go to the zoo. (laughs) I don't know. And during the pandemic, they really were a lifesaver with my preschool students. You know, I did a bunch of boom companions for YouTube videos, like song companions. Yeah, I used some of them where we would pause the song and then we would, you know, move the little pieces around, answer questions, get the kids talking. But, you know, reading this chapter made me kind of go, Hmm, maybe there's a different way. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe there's a better way. I don't know. What's been your experience with songs in the classes you've been in? I know you're not as much in preschool. Yeah, I didn't really have the opportunity to use songs. I mean, there's some cool teachers pay teachers resources out there for using inferencing in like pop songs for high schoolers. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of fun. But as far as nursery rhymes and stuff, not much. I mean, I was just kind of like working with elementary kiddos. And I think if I'd started singing, they would have looked at me like, you're embarrassing. I know. <laughs> I know. I know. So it sounds fun. I'm a little jealous. <laughs> I know. And, you know, I think all the preschool teachers I had did a good mix. Like they would play the super simple songs where the kids would watch. But then they would play just the audio of that I am a pizza song and they had hand motions to go with it. And that's more what we did as kids. So yeah, they had a mixture, but this was just a good reminder. Yeah, You should be singing when you can, teaching kids songs. I don't know if I'll do it because like you, I feel so foolish. Even with my early intervention kids, if I start singing, sometimes I feel like they'll just look at me. But you know, you could probably (laughs) develop a good schedule or routine where like, okay, the first thing you do to warm up is you sing a song together. Yeah. And then you can move into play. I mean, I wish I had more little kids, but I think in this job I'm starting, I'm going to be working with more little ones. So yeah, this was good for me. It did have the wheels kind of turning. Yeah. So that was just a short chapter. I feel like it got the point across. Yeah. Here's why you should sing. I love it. Here's what you're doing wrong. Do it right. Look it up. Start singing. (laughs) Yeah, it was inspiring. All right. So that's it for this episode. Make sure you tune in next week. We're going to be discussing chapter 13 of our book. And that one is written for us as SLPs. It's make time each day to discuss. So let's see if she agrees with us. (laughs) We'll see. Uh, See you next time. Bye, Adrian. Bye, Laura. At the SLP Book Club, our mission is to learn, grow, and connect with other SLPs and educators. 
If you love what we're doing, the best way to support the podcast is to leave a rating and review wherever you listen. This helps other SLPs find the show so our community can grow even stronger. We appreciate you so much and hope you keep listening and reading along with us.